0: Today we begin the New Testament. And appropriately, we begin with the Gospels and, of course, the Gospel of Matthew, the first one preserved for us. I want to say I've been reading the Bible for 40 years. The first time I read it through was about 37 years ago. And I've been reading it through at least once a year, almost every year since. But the last month, I have seen things I never saw before in the Gospels. I've seen things that I never saw before in the way the whole Scripture is constructed. To put this in proper perspective, the word Gospel is a word we don't use often. It is a compound Greek word, ou angelion, and it means good news. Angelion is the word from which we get angel or one who brings news. The u in front is good. Good news. But it's a part of literature that was never before implemented. Never before the four Gospels were written was there anywhere in any culture a Gospel. There were biographies, but there were no gospels. The four were the first of that form of literature. You see, if it was simply a biography, it would be a timeline that would be written from a neutral author position, simply giving data on the lifespan of the individual. That's a biography. But this is more than a biography. It's a gospel. The difference is, rather than the author being neutral, the author and his unique personality and perspective are preserved in the writing of the gospel. The other thing that would have been true but is not is if, if it was a biography, it would not be silent from the age 12 to 30. But it is, because it's not a biography. It's a gospel. A gospel is an eyewitness account written through the personality and perspective of that particular author for a particular audience with a particular purpose. That's a gospel. It's totally different than a biography. Because it's not a biography, it's a Gospel. Now, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, form the foundation of the Old Covenant. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, form the foundation of the New Covenant. Every book that follows Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is the outworking of the first five books. Every book that follows John in the New Testament is the outworking of the first four books. In a court of law, if you can get one witness, it's important. It carries weight. If you have two, it becomes convincing. If you have four witnesses, it's almost incontrovertible. Now, if all four witnesses, however, would all say the same thing the same way, the only thing you can be sure of is that they're all lying. Or at least three of them are. If, however, in a court of law, you have four witnesses that all say it differently. Like different camera angles on the same event. It becomes extremely convincing. Any court of law requires two, but four Is convincing. It's, it's clinching to the argument. And that's why these events are recorded not from one camera angle, not just two camera angles or three, but four camera angles. All covering the same thing and all written with this perspective that it's a gospel. It's not merely the summary of historic events, but it's the summary of those historic events from the distinct perspective of the author and with the distinct purpose that he has in mind. Now, with that understanding generally, when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew, there is a distinctive and the audience is distinct. And the purpose or theme is distinct. When we come to Mark, we're going to see the same thing. When we come to Luke, we're going to see the same thing. When we come to John, we're going to say the same thing. We're going to save those for now. I'm not going to try to contrast Matthew with the other Gospels because we want to focus this morning on what is the perspective of Matthew and the distinct audience to which Matthew is writing and the other three authors are not is the Jewish audience. Matthew is the author of a Gospel who is writing to communicate with the audience of the Jews primarily. And is it not significant that after 39 Old Testament books, all of which were written primarily for the Jews, then 400 years of silence that followed, that the first interruption of the silence... To interrupt, the 400 years of silence following all the writings of the Jews to the Jews for the Jews would be written now to the Jews. And we have His Greek name Matthew and His Jewish name Levi. His name is not contained within the book. None of the authors of the New Testament's names were contained until John put his name in the book of Revelation. The others were more anonymous. Paul would put his name because he was writing a letter. But the Gospels are not letters. And in that day, there were no publishing houses. There were so few books or lengthy treatises being written that there was no need for Matthew or Mark or Luke or John to put their name. It was all passed on by oral tradition who wrote it. So it's rather dependable that Matthew was the author of this book. Of all the Gospels, it's Matthew that says the words, it is written more than any of the other Gospels because he's writing to the Jews. And they had the Hebrew Scriptures and they were thinking. Now, now, this is Jesus, isn't this new? But, but he kept tying it to the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew quotes the Old Testament 53 times, Mark only 36, Luke only 25, and the Gospel of John only 20 times. You add to that the Old Testament references and Matthew links what's taking place to the Old Testament 129 times. Now, Matthew has in mind his Jewish audience. But what is his theme? What's the purpose? How is his camera angle zeroing in on Jesus? And what facet of Jesus is Matthew capturing? And it's quite simply, Christ the King. Jesus is King. And so, when we go to put our arms around the book and understand the book of Matthew, we see the first two chapters on the King's birth. Then chapters 3 to 12, the king's domain. Chapters 13 to 20 begin the king's conflict and the opposition that rises against this new king. Then almost 25% of Matthew from chapter 21 to the end of the book is all on the king in Jerusalem leading up to and including his crucifixion. And then the final chapter, the king's resurrection and his final commission to those who have placed themselves as subjects in his kingdom. Open your notes. We move from knowing the book. I want to focus here on Christ in the book. We've already said that the theme, the camera angle of the author Matthew on his take on Jesus presents Jesus as the king. Now, you're you're, you're going to be shocked to see that virtually every element that is unique to Matthew's Gospel all pertain to Christ as King. Matthew is the only Gospel that links the genealogy of Christ, His family tree... First back to King David and then back to Abraham. It was to Abraham that the Jews put everything because that was the first promise of the Messiah. And if Jesus was not in Abraham's family tree, no Jew would believe it. So Matthew is the one and only Gospel that brings Jesus ultimately back to Abraham. And then back to King David as well because he's not only the promised... Abrahamic King. He's the promised Messianic Davidic King. Matthew's Gospel is the only Gospel to call Jesus Emmanuel because it's the name of a king. Matthew's Gospel is the only Gospel to show the clash of Herod and the the Magi coming to give gifts to this newborn king. Why? Because in his Gospel, he's showing that Christ was the king. And Herod reacted and had all the the babies of his day killed just to make sure that no rival king would be raised up under his watch. Why did Matthew include that detail and the others didn't? Because Christ is born the king to threaten every other rival dominion. Then the king's announcement, the voice of one calling in the desert Prepare the way of the Lord. The king's coronation at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then why is it that Matthew is the only Gospel that records the Sermon on the Mount? It's because it's the king's manifesto. Now Luke has a modified version taken from different things that Jesus said throughout His ministry, but when Luke introduces Similar words, he said Jesus went down into a level place. Why would Luke position Jesus' teaching on a level place? Because when we get to Luke's Gospel, we'll discover that Luke is describing Jesus as the Son of Man. And a man talking to other men will stand on level ground. It's not that he didn't climb the mountain. He obviously gave these words on several different occasions. Any good preacher repeats his stuff in different settings. So are they, is there one right and one wrong? No, he did it on different occasions, but Luke is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is a man among men. And he was. That's why Luke's gospel doesn't just go back to David and Abraham, but it goes back to Adam. And shows that Jesus was a son of Adam. Because he's a man. And he was. Matthew didn't need to include that because the big deal for the Jews is, is he a Jew? And here Jesus climbs a mountain and he sits down. It's the king, in a sense, taking a physical throne to sit down and to speak those words. Fourteen times in the book of Matthew, Jesus said, I say to you more than any other gospel. Why? Because these are the words of authority. They're coming from a king. The word kingdom is used more in Matthew's gospel than any other gospel. Fifty-five times. Why? Because he's a king. Of the parables, of the fifteen parables contained in Matthew's gospel, twelve of them are introduced the kingdom of God is like. Because he's a king. More than any other gospel toward the end of his life, Matthew contains how often Jesus referred to himself as one who will come in glory and sit at the Father's right hand and will come with all of his angels. And it's Matthew's gospel that has another standing by watching him crucified saying, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And at the resurrection, it contains the information that an angel was there saying, He is not here, He is risen just as He said. And then you come to the end of Matthew chapter 28. And it's the only gospel that contains the words where Jesus said, All authority have been given to me. In heaven and on earth. Why did Matthew contain that? Because he's the king! And then he gives the king's commission. So as one who now has all authority, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Now, as we work our way through the... Bible, we want to learn how to use the Bible as a prayer book. So how do you pray the book of Matthew? Well, all the kingdom stuff, we're taught to pray, your kingdom come. What does that mean? How do, what does it mean when we're to pray your kingdom come? Learn the book of Matthew. Pray the book of Matthew. Pray the parables. The Beatitudes is all the kingdom. The first one, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of God. The last one, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for there is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom. And everything in between may not say the kingdom, but it is. It's describing the kingdom. And we can pray that down. And all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 describes what it's like to live the life of the kingdom. That's how you pray the book of Matthew. And eating the book of Matthew. Now some of you... Are in discipline of memorizing scripture. I want to challenge you as families to adapt a goal that between now and the time your kids go back to school that you learn Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You will never be the same. Memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And if that's too ambitious, memorize Matthew 5, the first 14 verses. And if that's too ambitious, memorize Matthew 16:24. In a moment, we'll get to that. But the part of this that I want to really dig into, you know, these words of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 have been the most quoted words in history. In my lifetime, I have heard every president quote the Sermon on the Mount. Not entirely, but refer to it. I've heard President Obama do it. I've heard President Clinton do it. I've heard President Bush and the other Bush and uh, President Reagan. In my lifetime, I've heard them all quote these words. From Shakespeare to Milton, Chaucer, they've all quoted these words. They're timeless. But more than quoting them, Jesus wants to make sure we live them. We don't want to be like other religious people that patronize the good book. We want to be that unusual people who live the book. If, if, if Matthew taught Jesus as a great philosopher, then we can give token reference. But He didn't. If you believe the Bible, you understand that Matthew was saying He is King. And if we're followers of a King, we do what the King says. Our lives are not about our own individual kingdoms. It's all about His kingdom. And how where we fit into that kingdom. And taking very seriously every word that Jesus says is highly important. Jesus began His ministry with the word repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, that means that the kingdom which Jesus teaches and us relating to Jesus, we we live in, in His kingdom and under His dominion. It has everything to do with being invasive and it starts counterintuitive or he wouldn't tell us at the first what's about to happen. If you're really going to have anything to do with me, you're going to need to repent. You've been going in one direction. You need to turn around and start going in another direction. The transformation that's going to happen in your life is going to be revolutionary. Now, if you haven't yet, oh, please open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, and I want to just dig in here to verse 17. These are perhaps the least quoted of all the Sermon on the Mount, and are perhaps the most important of the entire message. Because Jesus here, in verses 17 to 20, position His ministry and His words in reference to the first 39 books of the Bible and the Jewish system. And he begins by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Sounds good. We don't know what it means. Well, part of what Jesus did was he fulfilled Scripture. Many times, fifteen times, Matthew writes the words, this happened in order to fulfill what was written long ago. He's the only gospel that does that. Why? Because again, it's pinned, this is for the Jews. But he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now watch this. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now the last I checked, the heaven and earth are still here. So what the, Jesus is saying, okay, just because I've come and the New Testament is about to be written, don't think you can throw away the Old Testament. And just in case you thought the reason I'm preaching on Matthew today and some of the New Testament is because the Old Testament was about to get boring and I thought we don't want to lose everybody, so I'm going to jump to the New Testament. Just, just, Just in case you had that thought. That's not the reason. Before we're completely done with the Old Testament, let's understand how important it is. And let's understand as we continue, and we're going to go back to the Old Testament right after Easter, as we continue in that study, where we see more clearly, oh, that's what that was saying. That's what that meant. That's how Jesus fulfilled these words. Now, this is so sweet. Verse 19. First with the negative. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Then the positive. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. First, did you notice the sequence? Whoever breaks, disobeys, violates, and teaches. Whoever practices and teaches. It's the message that our lives preach that goes first than our words. If we don't live it, we shouldn't preach it. Those who preach it will be judged with greater strictness because we're not only expected to teach it, but to live it. Jesus said, I do that. And He said, anyone who's with Me has to do it that way. One of the major churches in the world is now paying $144 million to help Molested children that were molested by people in their organization. That's really sad. That is the exact opposite of what this says. Christian leaders are held accountable, more accountable. If you don't live it, you shouldn't teach it. But what's the point? The point is... That Jesus did not come to make us great thinkers. He came to change our lives so that we might live differently. He's a king. He's not just a buddy or a friend or a philosopher. The Sermon on the Mount ends with the beautiful little picture story of the guy, the wise man who built his house on the rock, in contrast to the foolish man who built his life on the sand. And I always thought that was the difference between Christians and non-Christians. That is not true. You read these words, and it says, the the man who built his house on the rock is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. It's the difference between the obedient Christian and the disobedient. Then there were people who came knocking on the house, and it was so mobbed they couldn't get any more people in there. and then Jesus' mother and his sisters show up, and they say, "Jesus, um, your mother and sisters have come, but they can't get in." And Jesus says, "Who are my mothers and my sisters and my brothers?" He who does the will of my Father, they're my family. There it is again. Those who are Christians are not those who believe the same, but those who live the same. God have mercy. When He came to confronting the religious leaders, He says, this people honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. And they practice what they want. The stuff that will make them feel good. But the stuff that cuts across the grain, they dismiss. And then, Matthew sixteen twenty-four: If anyone would come after me, three things, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Think about it. Okay, there are three things that are required to be followers of the King. Number one, deny yourself. Yikes. There's thousands of self-help books in Barnes and Nobles telling you how to elevate yourself. And Jesus, supposedly the greatest teacher of all time, is now trying to sell denying yourself? Yes! This is where we as Christians have gotten it. We've missed the heart of the gospel. It starts with repentance. And in the middle, it includes this thing of denying ourselves and taking up our cross. This is publicly identifying with Jesus in the marketplace. Jesus was not crucified on top of a baptistry between candelabras in a cathedral. He was, he was crucified on a garbage dump outside of town where thieves talk smut and gamblers gamble. That's where he was crucified. He took up his cross in the streets. And God wants us to publicly identify with Jesus at school, at work, in our neighborhoods. That's what it means. This thing of silent Christianity is not true Christianity. Well, I I show it by the way I live. Okay, that's fine, but part of the way we live is the way we talk. And we've already said you shouldn't talk unless you're living. We've already covered that. But the taking up of our cross to so identify with Jesus that the way people treat Jesus, they're going to treat us, and that's fine, that's the way we want it. And then to follow Him in step. And then at the end, the most overlooked word in the Great Commission is the word obey. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them whatever I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the... Oh, no, no, I missed something and teaching them to obey whatever I have commanded you. Now, you never understand the Gospel of Matthew unless you understand that a king requires submission. A king deserves honor. A king needs to be enthroned. Not just generically, personally. No, the Gospel of Matthew wonderfully shows Christ the King. The promised King. The pre-announced King. The anointed King. The sacrificed King. The victorious King. The authority King. The commissioning King, and I ask you this morning, is he your king? I think this morning some of us are going to crown him king of kings in a deeper, more invasive, more all-encompassing way than perhaps ever before. So that what we watch on TV will be affected. The way our spare time is invested will be affected. What we do with our money will be affected. The way we treat our spouse and children will be affected. No, some of us have made church almost like a hobby, like quilting or golf or a motorcycle and riding with Bunch of buddies. We add it to our life as a as a good thing to do. Good people do that sort of thing. I'm I'm better for it. But church, that's not church. In fact, Matthew is the only gospel that uses the word church. And the reason is because the Jews we're well acquainted with the term ekklesia. It's the Greek word that means the gathered together, the called out ones. The Jews knew that they were the ekklesia. And when Jesus said, I will build my ekklesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, every Jew knew what He was talking about. It's the new Israel. Brothers and sisters, allow God today, Jesus the King, Allow Jesus the King today to call your life under His submission in ways that you never have before. And allow Him to get extremely personal and practical, invasive, challenging, upsetting, but freeing And cleansing. And renewing. And life-giving. Redemptive. Jesus, thank You that You have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of bondage. The kingdom of self-destruction. And You've brought us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son, Jesus. And we... Declare Jesus is our King. And show your authority. We want to live under your roar. Lord, we live in a jungle. Be our King of the jungle. Take dominion. Let's all stand together.